0: I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Obadiah should be easy everybody's got that probably bookmarked uh, quite, uh, right there so I remember hearing of a guy who was sitting uh, with uh, at a conference with a friend realizing he had forgotten to bring his Bible so he's going to share the Bible with his friend and as his friend was thumbing through looking for this book Obadiah um, his friend just kind of said, I, I don't know why I can't find it. I was just reading it last week. And so the guy who had forgotten his Bible said, here, let me look. And he was thumbing through, and he found it. And the clue, for those of you that are still looking, is it is between Amos and Jonah, if you want the bigger <laughs> books. And as he was thumbing through, and you know how sometimes the, they don't cut all the pages? Well, the guy who had forgotten his Bible said, well, I guess you were reading this in another Bible, because this one is still still, the pages are stuck together. So anyway... You can look in your Bibles, and there is no shame in looking at the table of contents for the page numbers either um, as well. So we come to the book of Obadiah. Some may wonder why. Uh, It's one in part because we are looking at the postcards from God this summer, the single-chapter books of the Bible, and then some other uh, passages from the short letters to consider It's part of an expression to remind us that every word in this Bible has been breathed by God for our benefit and that we don't just major on the larger portions of scripture, uh, but that we gain wisdom by knowing the mind of God as he has expressed it, whether in great number of words, or as in this case, the shortest book in the Old Testament and merely 21 verses uh, in the book of Obadiah. So Obadiah, difficult for many of us to find in our Bibles, difficult for many of us to understand even when we find it in our Bibles, but as we look this morning, I hope that you will see that it is not only a practical message for us, but it is one to our times as well. Because there is a theme that is overarching that holds this message together, and it is a theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation throughout the Bible, and it's found in the very last verse of this letter, the very last words of this book, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's read this letter that God has given to us, or this, this book. Postcard. Obadiah, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape-gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, You are like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother, in the day of his his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives, Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in mount zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of jacob will possess their own possessions the house of jacob shall be a fire and the house of joseph a flame and the house of esau stubble they shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of esau for the lord has spoken those of the negev shall possess mount esau and those of The Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of Negev. Survivors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The word of our God. Let's go to him and ask that he would speak to us this morning. Father, as we come to this word that is powerful and prophetic and yet not easy to follow, may you, by your Spirit, give us minds to understand so that that which we process and understand with the minds illuminated by your Spirit might be a kindling for our hearts that you would draw us to you that you would give us hope and peace and deepen our faith. Bless us, Lord, enable us to see your promise, even the promise of Jesus, through this prophecy, that on its face offers little hope, but in reality turns us to our only hope, which is found in Christ. And you bless us not only in Jesus, but with all wisdom that comes from on high. We pray in the name and for the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. Here's essentially what's going on here. An overview so that we can then kind of distill the message that God is giving to his people and to us, his people, as well. Sometime prior to the writing of this book, this prophecy that obadiah has given us god had brought discipline and judgment upon his people for their own failure to walk in his ways god is patient he doesn't quickly have his anger but when his people whether during the time of the old testament or in his churches today continually walk in their own ways ignoring his ways and often ignoring god eventually god in his justice, brings discipline upon his people. Apparently what had happened is he had raised up another nation, which God has done in different times throughout the Old Testament, to come and be the rod of correction upon his people. They invaded, and they stole, they pillaged, and they forced many people to flee in Israel. While this was going on, Edom, which was a neighboring country that really was somewhat under the authority of Israel at this time. You might call it like Guam for the United States or Puerto Rico for the United States. It was a territory, it was distinct, and yet it was still a part of it. They sat back, they watched their neighbors get pillaged. They not only celebrated, but they seem to have assisted. We see that in verses 10 and 11, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On, that, on the day that you stood aloof and on the day that strangers carried off Israel's wealth and foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And so they stood back and they watched and in some ways even assisted because what's also alluded to later is when people were beginning to flee Some of the Edomites would cut them off and slow them down so that they would be able to be captured by the enemies that had come in. And God, while he is disciplining his own people and saying, Israel, you have been bad, he's saying to the nations that are around them, "Uh, you also are sinners. And so we're reminded that the condition of humanity, whether redeemed or belonging to God or, or far from God, we all have the same problem. We all tend to wander from our God. And while God brings correction to his people, he doesn't let the other nations escape by. And so here, God speaking to the people of Edom through the prophet Obadiah, does something that's very interesting. He gives us a book, one of the only prophecies, at least that in its entirety, is geared toward a nation that is not the people of God. Now, the people of God are here, They're the ones to whom the prophecy is given, but the prophecy is about Edom, and yet at the very end, there's also a prophecy about God's people as well. Now, as we look at this particular letter, there are three things that are important that we see. Three things that are detailed, expressions of the overarching theme that the kingdom is the Lord's. The first thing is this, is that it tells us that God is in charge. And we see that by two very simple evidences that are part of this text, but would be easy to overlook. The theological word is sovereignty, that God is sovereign, and that's evident by these two pieces of evidence. First is in verse one, something that just looks like uh, a heading, because it just says, the vision of Obadiah. See, the key to understanding this is, this is a vision. This is a prophecy of things that have yet to take place. It is a reminder to us that God is the one who knows all things. He knows not only the things that have happened; He knows the things that will happen. God even knows the things that can happen. We call that God's knowledge. The it, it is His omniscience that God is aware of. God knows everything. And it's because of that knowledge that God is now speaking to his people, Edom. While the discipline seems to have taken place, the prophecy about how Edom is going to react, as in God is already working amongst his people, but the reaction that Edom would have has yet to take place. And yet God, because of his wisdom, warns his people. We look in verses 12. Through 14, and God says, Look, do not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah. And there's a whole series of warnings. God is saying, Do not do these things. Don't not only not do them, don't even think about doing them. This is a, a firm warning to a people who have yet to act, and it's an expression of the fact that. God is knowledgeable of all things, and the fact that God is knowledgeable of all things is one of the evidences that God is in control of all things. No one else knows everything. But along with the fact that God knows and therefore warns because of his knowledge, the fact that God would warn these people is another evidence that God is in charge, not just in charge here locally, but he is in charge globally. It reminds us that God is not a mere tribal God, that our God is the God of the nations, he's the king of kings, and all the other gods, not only are they primarily figments of the imagination of the people that have concocted them, but they are limited. They are limited to an authority over the people who would claim and worship and follow the ways of the God of their making. And in the Middle East at that time, much like in our culture today, people have no problem acknowledging that God has an authority over a particular people. When they have a problem is is when you claim that your God has an authority not only you, but over everybody else as well. And yet that's exactly what God is doing by speaking and correcting and threatening a people that were not his own, people who didn't worship him, people who didn't walk in his ways, people who did not acknowledge him. He was threatening and he was warning them. And therefore, he's declaring that he has authority over all nations, all peoples. Otherwise, it would be totally inappropriate for God to do that. I mean, think about it even in in terms of our day-to-day lives. We only have authority over our own children. And maybe there has been authority granted in certain circumstances with the children of friends that you have that are particularly close, so that when you see that they are misbehaving that you can offer correction. But you have no business going to a stranger that you see acting up, whether it's in a supermarket or wherever, and then scolding, correcting, and executing some sort of punishment upon that child. Not only is it ridiculous, it'll also get you arrested now. Likewise would be In terms of the nations of the world, God is declaring I don't only have authority over my children, I have authority, I have the right to authority over all people, no matter who they consider to be their God. God is in charge, God is in control. And and that itself, that this whole letter screams, is important for us to consider because it's in conflict with the understanding of much of our contemporary culture. Because many people in our culture basically have the attitude of any god will do. Sadly, that mindset is not only permeating the culture, but studies indicate that it's more and more permeating the church. That increasing numbers of people who would call themselves Christians are willing to one degree or another to submit to God, to worship God, but in their confusion of living in a pluralistic culture that allows the freedom of worship and freedom of religion rather than simply accepting that there are people who do worship other gods, they have come to believe that any god will do. If your god makes you feel good and my god makes me feel good, well, then all's good. And God in this situation here, who says not only does he know all, but he has authority over all, he directly confronts that prevailing mindset here and says, I am not a mere tribal God. You see, the mindset that says, well, you do what you want and I do what I want and I do it according to my convictions, according to my faith, according to the standards of my God, that relegates all gods into mere tribal gods. In other words, they have the authority and the influence over just the people who belong to him or subscribe to him or worship him. But as the scripture makes very clear, and he's demonstrating here, God is God of God, Lord of Lords, and King of the nations. So therefore we, as a people, need to be reminded of that and not to capitulate to the prevailing sentiment of our day. It's important that we do acknowledge in our pluralistic culture that people do have that freedom to worship and to practice a religion however they want. But if God is our God, We do not have the freedom. We do not have the latitude to embrace the mindset that just simply says all religions are essentially the same. But at the same time, this truth should bring us comfort. Because our God has all authority Our God is in control, as is evidenced by the warnings that he's giving and ultimately the judgment that was meted out. And therefore, our God is working out all things according to his purposes, which is for his glory, first and foremost, and for the good of his people, who are called according to his purpose. The second thing that we need to see here is that God will destroy all of his enemies. No, wait a minute. I mean, does God have enemies? A lot of people would have a hard time with this kind of a concept that God has enemies at at all. Sometime back I, I read an article by uh, a man named Bernard Lewis was an emeritus professor of Near East Studies at Princeton University. He was writing for, I don't remember if it was the New Yorker or some other um, publication. And he was in his area of expertise, he was writing practically speaking, and he was writing about the, the context of the Iranian government and in and, and, and Iran as they kept talking about the, the enemies of God. And then he, he broadened it, and here's what he, he wrote. Such phrases as enemy of God seem very strange to the modern outsider, whether religious or secular. The idea that God has enemies and uses man to help, order, help identify and dispose of them is a little difficult to assimilate into our present mindsets. And I think he's correct in that. Much of our world and the majority of our culture would really struggle with the whole idea that God has any enemies whatsoever, much less that he would have enemies that he would destroy. Because the prevailing sentiment, the prevailing mindset about what God is and who God is, is God is love. And we certainly would affirm the reality that God's nature is love. I think it's important that we need to recognize this and remind ourselves, and as we have opportunity to remind other people, that while Love is a characteristic of our God. Love does not define our God. Our God defines love. And there's a significant difference in that. In other words, we take the concept of love, we apply it to God, and if he does anything other than what we think is the definition of love, we assume, therefore, he either is not love because he's not meeting that definition as if the definition has authority over him. Or we... Ignore all other things because it isn't seeming compatible in our minds to the definition of love. The word love and the concept of love and all that love entails does not define God. It's just one of his attributes. Who God is, because he is love, he is the definition of love. And so therefore, all that he is should be included in our understanding of the whole concept of love. And yet people struggle with that because they want to narrow God into a single category. And while in no sense do we minimize the fact that God is love, we still have to face the reality that through this passage and throughout all the scriptures, we do see that God has enemies. We're told in in the book of Romans, in 510, for while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by by the, the death of his son how much more are we reconciled shall we be saved by his faith by by his life but see there's the key phrase is before God's grace came upon us we were by God's definition we were his enemies which means anyone who is not redeemed is an enemy of God in some way or another we see another passage that we see both in the Uh, New Testament and in the Old Testament Jacob I loved Esau I hated again it just seems so irreconcilable to us that God who has love would have anybody that he would hate and even one that is very well known as both James and Peter speak to God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, I know that not all opponents are necessarily enemies, but when we're dealing with the things that are in view here in this text, when we're dealing with life and eternity, the stakes of the opposition are a little more than you know an intramural flag football game where the opponents don't necessarily need to be your enemies. God is opposing those who oppose him and his way. In particular, we see in this passage this morning, the Edomites, who actually are the descendants of Esau, who God hated, are the objects of God's ire and his animosity. And while the Edomites were a historical people, so this is a specific warning to a specific people who lived at a specific time and in a specific place. We also understand from them that they are representative of all of God's enemies, all that God hates. And we see in them some of the characteristics that God hates and which make them his enemies. And in one part is because the Edomites were people that were were opposed to God's people. They were opposed to God's purposes, and they were opposed to God's person. And so they essentially declared war on God as well, which didn't bother God in one sense until they began to oppress his people. So what was the chief offense of the Edomites? We see that evident here in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, So the primary problem that they have is that of pride. And through this letter, particularly in the first several verses, we see specific things about which they were proud. Pride was the characteristic of their heart, but we see specific things that they thought of themselves that made them feel special, as if they were better than other people and not in need of anyone else, and certainly not in need of God. And the first we see continuing in verse 3, not only is the part of your heart, but we see that they're talking about the, the national defense in, in some ways. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So what is being referred to in this, um, in this verse is not only the attitude, but the place and the, the way that the Edomites would defend themselves. The Edomites were a people who lived in the rocks and particularly their capital city an area called Petra which is just caves and rocks and they lived in those rocks and the passageway between the rocks is incredibly narrow at its widest point. So a little mile, mile and a half long and the mountains go very high. They lived in those mountains at its widest point. It's about 40 feet across at its narrowest point, it's about 12 feet, and they say that it's on average about 15 feet. So you're up hundreds and hundreds of feet, and there's nothing that is outside of your reach, and so they said that it took only 20 men to defend the entire city, because 20 men scattered on both ends and through the middle, they would be able to toss down rocks upon anybody, any army, anybody that was passing through, and they were able to keep that alleyway, that passageway, completely safe from their people. And so because nobody was able to get past that, they had developed this idea that we may not be the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, but we are impenetrable and there is nobody who is able to bring us down. We are safe in a pure national defense sense. We see another evidence of the pride in verse 7. Your allies, and there's a judgment that is brought here, but they... They thought, okay, even if we have any problems defending ourselves, look at the nations who are our friends. They will come and they'll help us. And we see a third one in verse 8. God's talking about their wisdom. He'll destroy the, the wise men. So they took a great pride in their wisdom. And so in short, the Edomites were a very proud people and they were very self sufficient in their own mindset in their own minds. They thought nobody is going to be able to conquer us. And we have friends who will protect us. And if all else fails, we're smarter than everybody else anyway. Someone, as a side note though, I do have to say this, I never can read this particular passage without thinking of the pride of the United States. Because in many ways when we, some, I'm not gonna get into a definition of what American exceptionalism is and isn't, but many of the, many of the attributes that uh, we take comfort in are these very same attributes in the United States. We are the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. We have allies. And when all else fails, look at all the inventions and everything that has been developed in this country, we're smarter than everybody else anyway. And I'm not here making a case for or against the whole idea of American exceptionalism. Many of those attributes certainly are true of our country. I'm not saying they're not true. I am saying they're irrelevant. At least for people who fear the Lord. And God's judgment is upon Edom and really upon any people that would take pride in anything other than him. And God's judgments are outlined here, verses 4 through 6. Though you soar aloft like an eagle, and though your nest is among the stars, he's talking about the fact that they are up high in the cliffs, from there I will bring you down. And then he talks about the description here in, in verses 5 and 6 that are really quite startling when you think about it. God's not only saying, I'm going to bring you down, here's the description. If thieves came to you, if they plunder, if a, a plunderer came to you, Reading down, would they not steal only what they want enough for themselves? So if people came, they would take what they wanted, not everything. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? In other words, if you go pick grapes, if you go across the river and pick any of the berries, something's going to fall off the vine on the ground. Chances are, if it falls on the ground, you're going to leave it there. You get enough people that are picking those things, there's, there's stuff there. And God's saying, look, if you got plundered by the nations, if any of them, even the most hideous nation on earth, if they came, by their own, they'd take what they wanted, but you'd have a little bit left. If they took everything of your harvest, there would be things that would be left on the ground. But God says, but when I'm done with you, you won't even have those scraps. Verse 7. Your allies have driven you into the border in the peace. In other words, you may think you've got friends, but when I, who control the hearts of the nations and of all peoples, when I turn them against you, you will have nobody that you can turn to and trust. Verse 8, he's going to thwart the wisdom of the wise. Verse 9, and your mighty men. So not only the religious leaders and the philosophers of their day, but those who were the warriors of the day, they will be dismayed. And the Lord says in verse 15, as you have done, that's what I'm going to do with you. There's a theological concept that's involved in here. It's called what goes around comes around. And this is what God is declaring. It's a judgment that they deserve. It's a judgment that we all deserve. And God is pointing out the characteristics of his enemies and what he will do to his enemies. In case you're wondering his prophecy, in fact, God says, I will cut you off and it will be as if you never existed And in the world, there are no more Edomites. We don't know particularly when this prophecy was offered, but in history, Edom was invaded by Babylon, who who they would consider one of their allies. And the people scattered. They scattered, and enough of them moved, and they took a new identity, some of them, at least the the Edomeneans. And ironically of the Idumeans, there's one who is famous, Herod the Great. He apparently didn't learn the lesson from the past because he continued to oppose God and God's purposes and God's redemption. But in terms of Edomites, everything God said has come to pass. And it's a, just a reminder to us that God who is in control, he will destroy all of his enemies in his time when it suits his purpose. Because God is not only love. But God is just. Now these are important concepts for us to understand if we're going to understand who God is, if we're going to worship God with an awe that He deserves to have. And yet, frankly, I don't find a whole lot encouraging in these particular words, other than God's in charge, and we know God is good, so that part's okay. But we also need to realize it's not just God's goodness and that God will avenge whatever it needs to be avenged, but More important, we need to recognize God's justice and mercy will resound on the earth. And we see that at the end of this particular letter. The last verses are speaking to God's people. And he's reminding them. Verses nine, you know, for instance, it, um, in verse 18 he says the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph, is shorthand okay. for Israel, will be the flame and Esau will be like a stubble. It's all gonna be burned up and it shall burn and consume them and then those of the Negev shall possess. And so he, he goes on and he talks significantly about, it's not just the destruction of those who mocked and opposed God's people. But there is a promise for God's people, even though at this point in time, they were experiencing God's heavy hand of correction upon them. Many of them would have thought they're undone, their whole lives are over, they are destroyed, they are no more, God has forsaken us. And they deserved for God to forsake them, just as we deserve for God to forsake us, whenever we ignore him or turn from his ways. But God does not forsake or abandon his people. And he prophesies here not only that I'll give you another chance, but he's prophesying a glorious future. And the reason that they're part of the glorious future is not because God feels bad and he's going to give them a second chance, but because their future is inseparably linked to God himself. And he declares that his people will possess, and he used representation, but it's just a, a shorthand way of saying, the Lord will reign on the earth. My people will possess the entire earth not as a reward for us because God is reclaiming what is his and we belonging to him, we live somewhere. We, the whole earth belongs to God and the people that belong to God will live and scatter and populate the entire earth in the new heaven and the new earth. And the key in this seems to me to be found in, in verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. What's so significant about Mount Zion? I mean, it's a specific hill on the outside of Jerusalem, and after the temple was built, it became kind of a a nickname, the shorthand name. It was inclusive of the, the whole city of Jerusalem. The Lord says here is in Zion there'll be those who escape. What he's saying there and I believe not only to Israel but in a subtle way even to Edom and to all the other nations. The the people who try to escape and they turn and they go go to Zion. Here he's not really talking about the specific hill or the city of Jerusalem, but what it represents, and even more, as we're told in Hebrews, about the greater temple, the greater Zion, that is God who's come in the flesh. See, Zion not only is the physical historical place, but throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Zion is also a representation of heaven, where Christ is now reigning. And so Obadiah's vision, whether Obadiah himself was fully conscious of it or not, but God was giving a prophecy. He was looking past just the restoration and the return of the people from their exile, but he was looking to the time of the Redeemer. And Mount Zion, therefore, is a shorthand way of looking for all the promises of God that come in the Redeemer so that there are those who go to Mount Zion. In Mount Zion, there shall be some who escape. So the people who go to Mount Zion, they will escape the judgment of our God. It's not only the holding place for the people of God, representative of the whole people of God, for heaven and even for Jerusalem, which is the headquarters on earth, but from all the nations. That would include even Edom. The significance of it here is saying God is giving us a tremendous hope because while his justice continues to prevail and his mercy continues to be expressed ultimately so that it resounds throughout all of the earth, he's declaring in one sense that there will be people from everywhere that will find their hope, their salvation here. And so here we learn a significant difference about something we need to understand. In this world, in this life, it's not that God punishes the people who are opposed to him and leaves his alone and just says, ah, forget it. He does bring down his hand upon both, but there is a difference between discipline and punishment. See, punishment is simply the exacting of the wrath of God. It has no purpose other than to wipe out and to express the justice and the anger that God rightly has. And this is what he says he was pouring out on Edom as a nation, and to all other nations and peoples who are ultimately ultimately who will oppose him. But we need to be reminded that in this passage, he's already brought rod of discipline upon his people, they've experienced hardship, difficulties, some of the same things, maybe not as severe, but they've experienced it as well. But God has told us that it is not for the purpose of punishment, but for the purpose of discipline and of shaping. In fact, he tells us in the New Testament that we, if we don't experience any kind of discipline, then we are not his children, that he in his love doesn't allow us to go our own way, but he continually brings us back and all discipline is for the purpose of returning our attention to him, to shaping the direction that we go so that we would walk in his ways. And the reason is for the difference or the key to the difference is this Mount Zion. It points to what Christ has done where he's interceding for us because those who are under no cover but their own wisdom, power, and friendships will experience punishment. Those who are under Christ have the benefit that he absorbed the punishment on our behalf. And therefore, we shall escape. We will be restored. We will be blessed. We have a future. We have hope. And there are promises that I won't go into right now. You can read them on your own, verses 18 through 20. All because the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I'm gonna wrap this up. In Psalm 2, the psalmist declares this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And It's an interesting phrase because not only the nations, by nations he's probably referring to governments, what we would look at as geopolitical entities. Peoples is an interesting word. One is because people is already plural, so why add the S? And it's a significant word that is reminding us that within geopolitical or any kind of entity, there is any group of people who would identify with one another because they share common values, uh, common worldview, Common faith, common things, common philosophies. And I think it's illustrating what is taking place in Obadiah. Because in Psalm 2, these, whether it's nations or people who live according to various philosophies, are at odds with God. There are kingdoms that are in conflict. They oppose God, they oppose his purposes, they oppose what he's doing, and we living here in our culture today, many who are in the church, the evangelical church, are very concerned about the philosophies that are prevailing within our culture. Uh, we use the shorthand word uh, culture wars. And some feel oppressed and fearful of the future. Others feel the need to engage in war, warfare against them, because they fear if, they don't fight fire with fire, then they will end up being overcome. Obadiah speaks to us because some of the culture wars remind us of the failures of the church of Jesus Christ, that we have bought world, different worldviews that were not God's, we have operated not according to God's will, and so some of the stuff that we are experiencing as Christians where we've lost the privileged status that we've had, we deserve it. And the response should be we repent and we remember, and we return to our God. But second, we need to realize that God is in control of all things, and the kings have come in conflict with God. Those who become God's enemies, he will ultimately destroy and wipe out, and his people will be restored fully. Why does he do this? I mean, what's so bad about pride? What's so bad about some of these that Don't try to perpetrate evil, but the answer is because they offer a counterfeit worldview, a different gospel that ultimately leads nowhere and offers no hope. I was in North Carolina a few weeks ago. There's a road in the mountains of western North Carolina that's called the Road to Nowhere in the town of Bryson City just off the Cherokee Reservation. I'd seen it. I'd never had been on it before, but I had some time to kill, and I couldn't resist finding where does the road to nowhere go. I've always found it a little bit cruel that the high school in the town is on that road, so <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, and i would never been beyond the high school, and there's probably a whole lot of things we can think of on that. But I followed it, and one of the things is it's is an absolutely gorgeous road, beautiful scenery overseeing mountain vistas and, and, the, and the rivers and, uh, that are down below, and you keep on winding your way up, up to the edge of the Smoky Mountain National Park. And then it just stops. In a sense. So someone has made a road and the road continues. But there are permanent barriers that are there in the road. That you are not getting your car, your truck, or anything else past. And so the roads of nowhere kind of go somewhere, but you can't get there. And the same is true for all of the wisdom and the vision and the purposes of the nation which brings them pride. And God, in his mercy, doesn't want us following roads to nowhere, and so he opposes all those things that offer roads that lead you where you don't want to go. But we have the comfort of knowing that God, when we submit to him, will lead us not only where we want to go, but where he knows we ought to go, which is greater than anything that we want. It's part of the reality, as Obadiah says, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Father, we thank you for this word and pray that you would give us understanding not only of the circumstances of Obadiah so that we may know your word and your people's history, but how the principles apply to us. May we, your people, repent of our waywardness, understand and rejoice that you love us enough to discipline us, remember your promises, return to you, to walk in your ways on the path that leads to everlasting. For your kingdom is here and will come and will last forever. To you be all praise and glory.